You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helen Bauer, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. Estate planning. No two words are more reviled in and out of financial circles. It is complicated, makes us consider our own mortality or even incapacity, and requires revealing some of our most personal information to others. We often talk about the stumbling blocks. Whether it be medical powers of attorney or financial, there's always a good reason to put off such planning. It's too expensive, too time-consuming, or too emotionally wrought. There's another side of the story, however, that we usually completely forget. For each solid estate plan, there is a family member, loved one, or close friend who ultimately becomes responsible for carrying it out. Today, we talked to a healthcare professional about how she unexpectedly became a surrogate decision maker for a friend and the toll it took on her. Helen Bauer has been a nurse for over 30 years, specializing in hospice and end-of-life care since 2009. She's a certified hospice and palliative care registered nurse with experience in patient care, nursing management, quality, and compliance. She's also the host of the Heart of Hospice podcast. Helen Bauer, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let's start out at the beginning. Tell us about your friend, Betty. I had known Betty for probably 30 years before she ever became sick. She was one of those friends like family people that spent every holiday, every birthday with us. She knew my children. She knew my husband's family. You know, we even called her Aunt Betty. She was just part of the family. Now, she became sick and had a period of illness before she passed away. But let's go to before all that happened. Did you know that you were written into her estate plan? I did. She had come to a birthday party or a holiday one day and handed us an envelope and said, here's my will. You guys are the executors. And I believe in passing, she mentioned that I was her medical power of attorney. But that was the extent of the conversation. We all know, or us in the medical community, and we're in hospice and palliative care. So you and I both know that extensive conversations are actually needed. But let's go back to that moment when she handed you the papers. A, did you read them over? And B, at that time, did you have any idea what type of responsibility this would truly be in the end? We did not read them over. My husband and I were both designated as executives of her will, executors. And I don't remember doing anything maybe beyond opening up the envelope and paging through things. And as far as the medical power of attorney document, I think I registered that it was there. But she and I never had a conversation. And I carry that guilt. You know, there was responsibility on both sides. If I knew she had made me her MPOA, I should have approached her about having those conversations. So, no, we we didn't pursue that. As we move on with this podcast, I'm going to ask you more questions about why you should have had more conversations. But before we get there, You and I are healthcare professionals. Not only that, but we're in the field of hospice and palliative care, which is end-of-life care. Was part of you at the time like, oh, I'm a hospice nurse. I got this. I don't need to know anymore. I think she gave us those papers before I became a hospice nurse. It predated that. 
And I tucked that paperwork away and just never thought about it again. That, by the way, handing somebody a folder with your documents is not an advanced care plan conversation. <laughs> that is not advanced care planning. Um, it was completely inadequate. And I knew the paperwork was there, but I think I just pushed it to the back of my mind because she was perfectly healthy at the time. So we talk about advanced care planning. We also talk about estate planning. Let's specifically talk about what rights Betty gave you. What were the pieces of that estate plan that you ultimately became responsible for? Well, I I personally, individually, by myself, was her medical power of attorney. But my husband and I were designated as her durable power of attorney agents, the executors of her will. So not only were we managing the healthcare medical decisions, we were managing her finances, making her um, financial decisions, managing her money, paying her bills, and which grew very, very complicated when she became ill. But so my husband and I were responsible basically for all the living and financial part of it. So basically, if we break it down, there are three main pieces we're really talking about. There are medical decision-making pieces. There are financial decisions. And those are both while the person is still living. And then there is carrying out the will and being the executor. And that's after they die or pass away. You use the term durable power of attorney. And I think we throw that around quite a bit. What does that exactly mean? What, what does the durable portion mean? Well, that's about managing the goods and the monies that they have. Um, taking responsibility for that piece of things. I won't use the word estate, but the monies that the person has at the time before death. So managing paying her bills, making sure that responsibilities are taken care of and that she is taken care of when she, of course, can't make those decisions and take care of that business herself. Talk about the weight of being the sole decision maker. And I'm lumping you and your husband together, because in a sense, I believe you are probably making decisions together almost as a sole entity. How did that feel for you? Because it hits me that while we accept these kind of papers and think about it beforehand, it seems like no big deal. But when we actually get to that place, we're kind of craving for others' input. I think you hit the nail on the head. When she gave us the paperwork, I think my husband and I took a look at it. Oh, yeah, you know, this is what we'll do when the time comes. Never having done it before and not knowing anything about her finances, which were not in great shape when she began to decline um, physically and needed help with everything. I think we really didn't have a clue. And maybe that's very symptomatic of what most people experience. You know, if you've never done this before, you really don't know what you don't know. Um, We were fortunate in that my mother-in-law, who was very, very close to Betty, had been helping her pay some of her bills, writing her checks and things like that. But there was no legal authorization. She was just helping out while Betty had when Betty became very sick. So when my husband and I assumed that responsibility because Betty was no longer able to manage her finances, we were completely blindsided. Both of us, not one more than the other, we were grateful to have the other one, you know, having another agent to work with, because it's a very overwhelming task, even if the finances are in great shape and very visible. But, you know, everything, you can put your hand on everything that you need, but just completely clueless as to what needed to happen. Let's talk about some of those financial conundrums. I think when people think of estate planning, again, they think of a will and trust and managing someone's money after they die and making sure it goes to the right places. But what you found out is when a person becomes incapacitated and unable to make decisions, you may be making financial decisions for someone who is currently living, which means a lot of their bills go on, a lot of the things that need to be taken care of financially continue to exist as opposed to ending. Talk about some of the financial conundrums. So she gets sick, she doesn't die, but she's incapacitated. How did you even go about figuring out what bills you needed to pay? What were her responsibilities that you needed to take over? How did you figure all that out? Well, my mother-in-law had been helping her some, so she had an idea of what the monthly bills were. So we were able to pull all that together. But we basically went on a scavenger hunt and had to go into Betty's apartment, 
look through all her things, searching out, finding documentation of different things. And it became a huge financial issue and um, really a race to figure out what she needed because she plateaued after she became sick. And this sounds a little bit harsh, but we were anticipating that she was going to die. We were told that she's actively dying. Her death is imminent. And I understand that part of things, right? We we got that. She had health care. She was being taken care of by a medical team. And she had a place where she was receiving around the, around the clock care. But she plateaued and she got better. And we had to find a living space for her with around the clock caregiving. And talk about a drain on finances. She did not have a lot of money. And Betty had a habit of being a hoarder. So when we went into her apartment, it was filled with all sorts of things that had no relevance to what she was going through, but we had to sift through it to find the paperwork that we needed. One of the things we ran up against was figuring out what her finances were, the bills that needed to be paid, and then to figure out what assets she had, savings, retirement, et cetera, so that we could place her somewhere find a living situation with a a full-time caregiver for her. And that was very challenging because we're looking at, you know, running out the clock on whatever time she had where she was staying. They're only going to give you so much grace. That's, that's an expensive thing. And we had to get her out of there very quickly and find another living situation. Now, this is a personal finance podcast. So a lot of people listening to this have some financial savvy or know-how, or they're in the process of learning that, you weren't necessarily trained to deal with these issues. Did you actually know how to manage the financial issues? Because most people have trouble doing it for themselves, but here you are walking into someone else's finances and had to try to figure out not only how to access, but what to do with their assets and how to arrange them in such a way to pay for whatever amount of care she'd need in the future. Well, fortunately, my husband is very money savvy. And we were able to look very quickly. Her finances were simple. We could look at her retirement accounts. We knew exactly how much was there. Um, We could figure out how it could be used. And we did a lot of footwork. There were a lot of phone calls to agents or representatives, to her tax preparer, all sorts of things to figure out what we could do, how the money could be used, how fast we could get access to it. Because not all of that, not all of your assets are easily accessed within 24 hours. And also we had to establish the fact that she was no longer able to make those decisions. And we had to provide documentations that we were legally allowed to to move her money around and manipulate it. So my husband was is very savvy with that kind of thing. And I'm a communicator. So between the two of us, we figured out how to get in touch. Customer service, which of course is a nightmare when you're dealing <laughs> with multiple entities. But we we managed it. We sort of each brought the the talents that we had to the job and we figured it out. It was it was extremely time consuming, extremely time consuming. Yeah, I, I want to touch on that time consuming part and let's highlight logistics for a moment. Like, did you have trouble finding passwords for accounts? And even when you did have passwords and you had all the documentation, I found that it's often difficult to explain to banks and actually prove to them or other accounts that you are the decision maker. Like, you would think it's just simple, show them the piece of paper, but it's not always that straightforward. Right. Well, so in Betty's particular case, Betty was not tech savvy as an older woman. Okay. So she did not do online banking. Uh, which probably made life a little easier for you. It, it actually did because we could present ourselves at the bank. It's a, a fairly small community. We went to the bank and said, this is what has happened. Here's our ID and here's her documentation that gives us the authority to do this. And once the bank had processed it, now that kind of stuff is not processed locally. Typically they have their systems that they go through and you may wait a few days to be able to get access to things. Her safe deposit box was one of those things. Um, So the fact that she actually had fairly simple finances without passwords and a lot of online accounts was actually really helpful. Talk about time commitment. Because again, someone says, I made you power of attorney. You kind of say, okay, sounds good. 
Talk about the amount of time you spent doing these things. And I'm not sure how long this went on for. Was it a month or weeks or how long was were you kind of managing things for her before she died? It was about three months. It was about three months. And in that time period, she was never able to make decisions at all. She was never able to have any input into those decisions. So I took the lead as far as chasing down the people we needed to talk to, making copies of the documentation, sending off or scanning the documents that needed to be sent, you know, IDs and then the paperwork. And of course, that continued after her death as well. But it was very time consuming, a lot of time on the phone. I learned to use my earbuds and, <laughs> and just have my phone and I would fold laundry or, you know, organized paperwork that I was working with for Betty's accounts while I waited on hold to talk to different people. And then you tell the same story 50 times to different people. It was, I I found it a little frustrating in addition to the fact that we were sleep deprived and of course grieving because this was somebody who was near to us and dear to us. And we were watching her towards the end of her life. And, And so the grief I think the grief played a part in the exhaustion that came with things. Yeah, I'm reminded exhaustion. I'm thinking burnout. I want to talk more about that in a moment. But before we do, because we're talking about finances, was there ever a point where you're like, oh, my God, she's going to run out? And did you have to start thinking, boy, if she lives six months or seven months, she may run out of funds. And what are we going to do then? Absolutely. So she was in a general inpatient hospice facility. When she began to improve, she plateaued. And we had um, closed her apartment down and cleaned it out because she needed that money for a caregiving system. And we knew she was not going to be able to go back and live alone. And the rent, of course, was probably her biggest monthly expense. So we cleaned out her apartment, closed it down, really anticipating that she would never leave the hospice facility. And then when she began to plateau, we were told, you know, she can't stay here. She's doing better. We, you know, she's no longer actively dying, which you think that would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That's great. We were very joyful about that. Right. That was wonderful. And then we're like, well, holy crap. We have to find a place for her to live and she can't drive. And okay, so if we look at the money that she has, a nursing home, $5,000 to $7,000 a month. And, you know, how many months could we go? We I begin to panic a little bit because she had a certain number of days and we knew that the level of care or the type of care that she would need would be very expensive, very expensive. And was there ever conversation, even what kind of care? Because when you get to end of life, right, there's there's nursing homes occasionally, depending on someone, how they are, there's assisted living, there's home with home health care. Um, some places there's inpatient hospices, depending on how ill someone is. Had you ever, ever had any kind of conversation of where she would like to die even versus... Because that that plays a big role in the finances too, because the, each option has a different pricing structure. Well, Betty was very averse to talking about anything related to the end of her life. Um, Her friends later told us that when they were going to a lawyer to do their own wills, there were several of them that were single retired teachers, they had to drag Betty to go. She did not want to go. She never had those conversations. I even talked to her friends about, did she tell you what she would want to do if she couldn't live in her apartment anymore? She never talked about any of that with anybody. So we were really just trying to structure things as best we could. I was traveling for work. I worked as a consultant, so I was on the road. I had to take time off. My husband works locally, so that was helpful. But she and I never had any conversations about any of that, you know, reflective conversations about how you feel about the end of your life or what you would want at your funeral, how you want to be remembered. She just never was comfortable having conversations like that. Let's talk about after she died, right? So you also had to figure out the finances specifically of the burial and it sounds like she had never talked about whether she, what type, did she want a traditional burial? Did she want any of that? 
How did you decide what decisions to make for her funeral once she had passed away? I Betty had a cousin that lived several states away. She came in and between the two of us, we sort of pieced together what we thought she might like, what we thought would be appropriate. And we did go to the funeral home and, and pre-plan. It was probably a month or two before Betty died. We were so caught off guard that I think we would have made better financial decisions if we had had some pre-planning conversations with Betty. But at the time, I was exhausted. I was trying to figure out the finances, find her a place to live, you know, watch the money, figure out a budget so that we could do this for as long as she was going to need us to, and then figure out if she had a benefit, a retirement benefit that would cover her funeral expenses. And she did. She did. The only conversation I had with Betty about this was I needed to ask her, I wanted to ask her if we could access this. It's really a death benefit that Retired Teachers Association has here in the state of Texas where we live. And I wasn't sure if Betty was even oriented enough to have that conversation with me. And and plus, I was worried that she would get upset about it because she was never comfortable having those decisions. So I went to her one day and the social worker from the hospice that was taking care of her had done a mini mental, which is a mental assessment to find out whether a person is oriented, you know, how aware they are of their circumstances and and what's happening with them. And she'd had a great day the day before when the social worker went. So I went to her the next day and very gently introduced. I said, Betty, I need to talk to you about your financial benefit in the retirement fund that are, that is your death benefit. And she said, okay, she was willing to talk about it. And I told her, I said, I'd like to go ahead and access that to prepay for your funeral. And she seemed like she understood. And she said, yes. And so we moved on with a conversation about other things. And then before the conversation ended, she asked about her mother and her mother had been dead for years. And I realized she was not going to be able to help me make any sort of decision like that. So basically, we just made decisions with all the funeral arrangements guided by the funeral director or the the funeral sales rep that we worked with. Probably not the best case scenario. We are talking to Helen Bauer. She has been a nurse for over 30 years, specializing in hospice and end-of-life care since 2009. And we are talking about her journey as she unexpectedly became a surrogate decision maker for a friend and the toll it took on her. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. Have you been using Mint to manage your finances? It was one of my favorite budgeting apps, but here's the problem. Mint is disappearing. Now we all are stuck with the question, how will we manage our budget and finances now? Well, I discovered Monarch Money, and I have to tell you, I found it simple, enjoyable, and made for users like me. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. There's so many great things about Monarch. One is it's intuitive. When I signed up, I went to the website, and within minutes... I had had all my accounts downloaded. I connected to all my banks. It is collaborative. It's not only made for people like me, but for people like me to then share it with my spouse or my financial advisor or what have you. And Monarch is so customer focused that they're always looking for ways to improve and make their product serve us better. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N. 
A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. This episode of Earn and Invest is sponsored by BetterHelp. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash earn and get on your way to being your best self. Listen, a common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right, but sometimes the best ones happen when both people put in the work to make them great, and therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all your relationships. I know because when I went to BetterHelp, one of the relationships I wanted help with was that with my father. You see, my father died when I was seven years old, and I had a lot of unresolved issues. My therapist at BetterHelp was actually really good at helping me talk about those issues and start to find answers that normally I would have tried to find with my father, but since he was no longer around, I had to find them on my own, and having a therapist was incredibly impactful in that journey. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com earn today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot earn. We are talking to Helen Bauer. She's a certified hospice and palliative care registered nurse with experience in patient care, nursing management, quality, and compliance. She's also the host of the Heart of Hospice podcast. And we are talking about when she became a surrogate decision maker, both financially and medically for a dear friend of hers, Betty. We've been talking about the nuts and bolts, Helen, but let's talk about the stress and exhaustion Listening to your story, the best word I can use is burnout. It sounds like an exhausting process. Tell us about the emotional toll it took on you. The sleep deprivation affected me. The time deadlines affected me. The the involvement from other people uh, affected me. It became hugely stressful. I felt very pressured, mostly because of the medical decisions. And then additionally, in my marriage, my husband and I trying to manage someone else's finances, it it was stressful and caused some, some strife between the two of us as well. Overly emotional. I would cut people off. Hmm. You know, I, if my mother-in-law was a huge help, she knew better, Betty better than anybody. But if she tried to to give me a big backstory, I'm like, I don't have time to listen to that. I was short-tempered. And most of all, I was worried that we weren't doing the best for Betty. That somehow the care and how we were managing her money, that that wasn't the best thing for her and it didn't reflect her values. We were very fortunate. We got plugged into a personal care home with a woman who had taken care of people like Betty before, close to end of life, reasonable price. And she was someone that I knew and I could confide in. She was very helpful. But I found the whole process overwhelming, trying to narrow down options. And it really, it it did make me angry with Betty emotionally. And I felt guilty. First of all, you know, what kind of friend am I? that she would give me these papers. I would never look at them. And then as I became a hospice nurse, did I just forget that she had designated us like this? And so I never went back and had that conversation, which is what I teach people to do for a living, is how to talk about your advanced care plan. We're going to talk in a moment about what Betty could have done differently You were in the midst of stress, exhaustion, and burnout. So, of course, the world was going to look bleak to you. There's going to be a lot of guilt and fear, et cetera. Looking back today, do you think you could have done things differently? Like if you could now advise yourself in that position, right? So she was already sick. You already hadn't done the pre-studying and had the pre-conversations and all the things we now tell people to have. Do you think you could have done anything differently in the moment than you did? I think I would have delegated more. Hmm. She had friends friends that offered to do things, and I took them up on a few of the things that they offered. But I was so concerned about staying controlling 
I, I have a tendency to be a very detail-oriented, controlling person. And I wanted to make sure that it was exactly the way it should be and that I understood all the moving parts. So I should have delegated more than I did. I should have let myself rest more than I did. I absolutely should have. And I think I should have listened better than I did to my mother-in-law and to her friends. But Jordan, I will tell you that when we first heard that Betty was sick and we got in the car, took the paperwork, went to the hospital to find out exactly what her status was, I remember telling my husband in the car, if she is dying, I know we want to do hospice. I think that's important so she'll have the kind of care and we will have the support we need. I said, but I know two things. I don't want her to be uncomfortable and I don't want her to be scared. And I think every decision we made kept that at the center of it. So while there were things I would do differently, I think Betty did get good care and I think we did live up to the responsibilities that she gave us when she made us her her agents for the different things. One of the tragedies when someone is thrust in this position is you are not only all these things on paper, but you're also a friend and loved one. Tell us about how being responsible for all these things got in the way of your personal mourning process, both when she was ill and after she died. I very much approached the whole situation like it was business. She's a hospice patient. I understand hospice. I can deal with that. I can make the decisions. I can go forward with that. The business side of things, she needs her bills paid. She needs a a place to live with a caregiver. I understood the needs behind that. I think I came at it from a business point of view. The grief came later on. I, I knew that was there. The anticipatory grief was there the whole time. But I approached it from a business mindset. And I think that helped me to keep a clearer focus on taking care of the business so that we could take care of Betty. So as often happens, the loved one dies. How long did your responsibilities last after that? Because you were responsible also for her will and for what happened after she died. How many months did it take to resolve her estate? I think it probably took four to five months to resolve the very last thing, maybe up to six months. It was, she had outstanding bills and going back and forth between bill collectors and credit card companies and figuring out that a lot of them are owned by the same entities and communicating with those folks and providing documentation that was rather tedious work. And those pieces turned over very slowly to get completed. So I would say somewhere between four and six months. Did the estate pay you for doing that work in any way, shape or form? We could have taken, I think it's a 10% out of the estate that could go to the executor. But because Betty had outstanding debts, we did not do that. We were very careful at the beginning of the process to remind each other, my husband and I, that we should use Betty's money. That's what it was there for. And that we should not take out of our own personal finances unless it was absolutely necessary. So I'm going to do what we always do in podcasts. We bring up a situation, show you all the possible things that can go wrong. And then in the end, we get to the point of how could things have happened differently or better? So let's talk about Betty first, and then I want to talk about you. So people are going to be listening to this thinking, how can I make sure that things are smoother for me and my family? So in the case of Betty, looking back now, hindsight is 2020, what could have Betty done differently that probably would have made this easier on you and maybe even easier on herself? She should have had those conversations along with the documentation. Documentation is very limited without the discussion. Without the discussion, she could have told us where all the money was kept, how she wanted to do her funeral arrangements, 
She could have told us, well, there's a plot here and here's where the deed to it is. I think having those conversations with us, that was probably the biggest key. She wouldn't have even had to go into much detail as far as the healthcare part of things, because I felt like that was a better fit for me. But the financial piece of it, this huge scavenger hunt, such a waste of time. She could have had those conversations with us. That would have gone a long way to making things easier. And I just, I keep on thinking over and over again, she was not a digital native like everyone is today. Can you imagine if you had to find all those passwords and explain to all these companies that you didn't have a password because she was incapacitated and she couldn't tell you? I, I can't even begin to imagine what that process would have looked like. And and showing documentation where you have to get documentation from a medical professional that states she's not able to, to make those decisions and then add in whatever documents that she had designating us as agents to act on her behalf. Yeah, a very convoluted process. So we we talked about this idea of what Betty could have done differently, but a lot of it's out there maybe in the position that someone hands us that same sheath of papers has happened to you. So what would you tell listeners right now to think about when a family member or friend drops that sheath of papers on you and, and tries to turn around and walk out the door? What What kind of conversations, what kind of things would you advise someone who might be in the future taking on those responsibilities. Oh oh my gosh, don't let them get away with that. (laughs) (laughs) We, you know, that was really the onus of that relationship between us and Betty was definitely on us. If we accepted that responsibility and accepted that sheath of papers, we should never have let those conversations go unsaid. We should have I don't want to say force, but we should have facilitated those conversations. We shouldn't have left it. It's it's not that simple. And we didn't know her well enough and what her wishes were or anything about her finances to let that, that topic go undiscussed. So definitely my advice would be, don't let anybody, first of all, take advantage of you like that. And second of all, place you in a situation to damage your personal health, maybe your personal finances. Because if I I had to take time off from work, not everybody can do that. Can you take FMLA? That kind of thing. So I would say definitely don't, don't let the paperwork sit by itself. That's just not enough. And in fact, we don't talk about this often, but it's also okay to tell that person that Maybe you can accept taking on those roles because it's not feasible for you and you want them to get the best support they can get, which is a very uncomfortable conversation. Sure. But I think it's important to tell that person no if you don't feel you can act or you think their their wishes and what they want you to do are not in alignment with your own. You have the right to refuse to do that. I think in Betty's case, Jordan, she probably would never have redone the paperwork. She didn't have any other agents designated as secondary if for some reason we could not or would not act. I don't know that she ever would have gone back and had the paperwork redone. Talk to us about how your experiences with Betty affected your career and how you do your job nowadays. My personal experience with Betty was an eye opener. Mm-hmm. Nurses are big on do as I say, not as I do. We absolutely are healthcare. I think most healthcare people are like that. But I learned that when I am educating and teaching, that there's there are hundreds, thousands of nuances to each personal situation. And I think I learned to have an appreciation for the caregiving role, financial, state planning, advanced care planning, funeral planning, and end of life. I think I learned a, a deep appreciation for what those caregivers go through that as a healthcare professional, I really didn't have before. Were there any resources that were either particularly helpful for you or resources you now send your patients? 
towards and their families towards that can help them with some of these aspects? Because it seems to me you could spend many, many hours trying to understand estate planning, taking over someone's finances, making financial decisions for them. Are there any good places to start, especially if you're a beginner or maybe someone has handed you this sheet of papers and you're trying to figure out, is this something you can manage? I don't remember using any resources about finances other than Betty's attorney, the attorney that drafted her will and she worked with. We did go back to him several times to find out what we could do and and how we could uh, leverage her finances to take care of her. As far as conversations that need to happen, which include your estate planning as well as your advanced care planning, the conversation project is the organization that's my go-to when I'm working with other caregivers that are sort of in the same position I was. The conversation project, they're sort of the touchstone for all of these conversations, whether it's a conversation you are trying to initiate with your family or your family's trying to initiate with you. And it's more geared towards healthcare needs and end of life wishes. But all of that's balled up into one conversation, if you ask me, because you have to discuss the finances. It's a sad piece of it. We all want to talk about you know, who's going to be there when I die and how I want to be taken care of. But that comes back to, can you afford to die in your house by yourself? Are you a solo ager? Can you afford 24-hour caregiving? And so the financial part of it always comes into play. We don't like to think about it that way, but it absolutely does. Well, Helen, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. I wanted to do the show really for a few reasons. One is, I think if you are going to accept these roles in someone else's life, or if you are doing your own estate planning and trying to decide who's going to do these things for you, you really want to be thoughtful about what it actually means and what is involved. And as much as we don't like talking about estate planning, we also rarely talk about what it means to carry out someone's estate. And it can be very complex and time-consuming. That's point one. The other point is when you are either dying or helping a family member or friend die, you want to be able to be emotionally present and with them and comforting them. And part of the problem is we get so caught up in all these financial and medical decisions that we're spending a good deal of our energy and thought on these technical aspects because they haven't been resolved for us and probably don't have the ability to be as present with our loved ones at this most important part of their life. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where we can find you. Let's start with the Heart of Hospice podcast. Tell us about your podcast. What do you guys like to talk about? We like to talk about anything related to end of life, advanced care planning, anticipatory grief, end of life wishes, bereavement, grief support, hospice philosophy. We love talking to hospice medical directors. You were on the show with us. Anything related to end of life care. The podcast got started. We're in season seven, almost to season eight. And we started the podcast because we got tired and discouraged when we hear families say, I wish we had known about this sooner. So definitely a source of education. And if people have questions based on this episode or anything else, what is the best way to get in touch with you? The best way to get in touch with me is my email, Helen at theheartofhospice.com. And of course, you can always check out my website, theheartofhospice.com. And the podcast is on Spotify and Apple and all the different uh, major podcast platforms. Helen Bauer, thank you for coming on Earn and Invest today. Thank you so much, Jordan. Great to talk to you. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. Hey, everybody. I am 
back. That's right. I just returned after two weeks in Portugal. I hope you didn't notice too much of a difference in the show. I tried to make it as smooth as possible, but my family and I spent two weeks there. And I have to say, I love Lisbon. Um, I could definitely live there. So at this point, I've always been trying to figure out what do I want to do after both kids are in college? Kind of tired of the winters here in Chicago. Where could I live? I thought that was going to be in Mexico, and I do love Mexico. But I'll tell you, something about Europe just feels right. And Lisbon was a hell of a city. Just a lot of things to do, a lot of lovely people, a lot of great sights, and just a vibe, a feel that I dug. I don't know what'll happen in the future, but I could imagine spending a few months a year there, especially in the winter when it gets cold in Chicago here. But that's not what I want to speak about today. These remarks are totally off the cuff, but I wanted to reflect a moment on my one-year anniversary. That's right. By the time you're hearing this, it will be my one-year anniversary. My book, Taking Stock, a Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life came out August 2nd, 2022. It has almost been a full year. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what the experience was like. First and foremost, writing a book was really difficult. Now, the actual writing the book wasn't particularly difficult. I mean, I kind of knew what I wanted to say. I had my ideas together. I got a lot of help with that from my publisher and my agent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the actual putting the words on print and then putting it out there to be reviewed, looked at, digested, that was really emotionally difficult. I have to say it's really vulnerable. I don't know why. Like, I do this podcast, which means twice a week you are listening to something that I produced every week for the last four years. And for whatever reason, that doesn't feel vulnerable to me. But taking all my deepest thoughts and putting them into a book, a long-form conversation really shook me in a lot of ways. It shook my confidence. It definitely made me feel worried and depressed and anxious. And then after it came out, there were all sorts of ups and downs. Will it sell? Will anyone be interested? Did I accomplish what I wanted to accomplish with the book? All of these things were swirling around now that it's been a year, I can for sure say that this is probably one of the best things I've ever done, and I really, really feel proud of what I produced. First and foremost, did it accomplish what I wanted it to accomplish? Yes and no. I mean, I was hoping to get the book out to as many people as possible, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions. Well, that didn't happen. I mean, I think the first year sales were somewhere around 13,000 books between the audiobook, the digital version, and the paperback were sold. I'm really happy with that number. I feel like that was enough to get out to the world for people to start reading it and start digesting it. So I didn't break any records. No bestsellers here. No New York Times or Wall Street Journal bestseller. But I felt like I got it out to people in a very large way such that People could really digest these ideas, and hopefully, hopefully, it could help them. It still kind of amazes me. Someone sent me a picture of my book in a library in some small city in Michigan the other day, and it just floored me that it's out there in the world. Uh, someone else sent me a picture from Canada at a bookstore where they saw my book, or I was reading The Bitches Get Riches did a giveaway of my book, and someone put in the comments that they're going to be borrowing it from their local library, which is awesome. That's really exciting. I don't care if you buy it or not. Borrowing it from your library is great. But there was a 13-person wait to get the book. So all of that makes me feel like I fulfilled my primary goals, that I'm getting my messages out there about purpose, identity, and connections, about the role wealth should play in our lives, and about the important messages the dying have to teach us about it. And a year in reflection, I'm feeling pretty good about it. Good enough that I most definitely want to write another book. I have no doubt about it. I am starting to think about what would be a good follow-up. I have some ideas. I'm talking to some publishers, and hopefully... 
I'll be able to announce in the near future that I'll be working on book number two. Should you write a book? I don't know. I guess the question is, do you have something to say and do you want to say it? Uh, Anyone can write a book in that sense and anyone can self-publish. If you decide to go traditional and traditionally publish, it's a little bit harder in the sense that you have to prove to the publishers that you have a platform and that the book is sellable and that you have a good idea. Um, the criteria is a little more stringent. And for me, I actually really like that. But no one can answer that question for you. Should you write a book or not? But I have to tell you that I'm really, really excited that I did. And thank all of you who bought the book or suggested it to someone else or who borrowed it from the library. Again, the name of the book is Taking Stock, A Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life. I hope you get a chance to take a look at it, and I hope, I really, really hope, it changes your life. All right, I leave things running just for a few minutes to catch our after show, kind of the things we talk about afterwards. Was there anything we didn't talk about or I didn't mention that really felt important to that process with Betty? No, actually, I thought it was a really robust interview. Your questions are great. Thank you. You you captured the financial part because, I mean, that's the focus of your podcast. But you also acknowledge that there's uh, a grief component and an emotional component that affects how the whole process rolls. So, I, yeah, I thought it was a very robust conversation. I think both parts are important. And you and I, in our in our medical career talk about one side very often, but in my financial career, I talk about the other side often. And it is true, we always hammer away, you need an estate plan, you need a estate plan, you need a estate plan, but we don't often really go into the details of what that means and what the other side of it is. And that's why I think it, to me, it's an, a really engaging conversation. Um, I currently were in the process of working with my father-in-law, has some medical issues, etc. And it's it's exhausting and it's financial and it's it brings everything. It's medical, it's financial, it all comes together. Um, and I think you are blissfully unaware of it until you have to deal with it. And there's so many people out there who are blissfully unaware of the fact that this is actually a significant stressor in people's lives. Maybe one of the most stressful things you will do is deal with a loved one's illness and when someone dies managing their estate is is no joke i think the only thing more stressful than working on your estate planning is leaving it undone so that somebody else has to do it because and i have seen families do this you've probably seen this as well i have seen patients that would say no i i don't want to talk about that i'm just going to leave them they can just figure it out for themselves. It's almost like a last minute screw you on the way out the door. And a lot of times it, it's based on dysfunctional relationships, discord inside the family, you know, estrangement from, from their closest relatives. But having no estate plan is just a mess for it, the people who get left behind. And it seems to be, I won't say the default, but it seems to be a lot more prevalent than we like to admit that there's either no estate plan or an ill-defined estate plan or an estate plan that hasn't been updated for more than a decade. Like, so people might have something, right? There may be something there, but it may not be adequate for what's going on. Absolutely. Um, So here's a, a good example. My mother, who's 90, is in the process right now of redoing her estate planning and all her advanced care directives because she has she has not looked at it since it was written and it was written in 2006. Yeah. yeah. All the addresses are wrong. Mm. Yes. Yes, all the information there are forms and documents that the attorney is saying this is what's applicable now. Um you know, my my mother actually was diagnosed with a latent TB infection, but she is part of a willed body donation, whole body donation program. Mm. So we had to call and say, would this exclude her if she were to die? You know, things like that. I think we don't touch back 
frequently enough to look at our advanced care planning and our state planning. Family members change, divorces happen, people die, people become incapacitated, maybe somebody that you have designated as an agent. So then did you recheck? Did you go back and edit the way you needed to? Maybe your doctor changed and then you never had that conversation with your new physician. There's so many different pieces, so many yeah. different pieces. It's and, it, We almost need to advocate a, a yearly check-in, right? Just needs a quick yeah. yearly check-in, maybe a series of 10, 15 questions. Did this change? Did that change? Did Have you had a change in your family? Has there been a major change in your finances? Has there been... Yes et cetera, et cetera, is just kind of a quick mental check-in. Yeah. Is your healthcare it, agent still willing to be your decision maker? Is the person you designated as your executor still willing and capable? Right. Do they still live in the area? Yeah. In my world in personal finance, there are a lot of do-it-yourselfers, right? People who don't use financial advisors. But I will tell you, a good financial advisor who has an estate planner they work with and who do a yearly audit and look at that kind of stuff can be worth its weight in gold to have a professional who's actually looking and looking at the estate planning as well as your personal financial planning, et cetera. It's just people don't want to pay for it. And I understand that it's expensive. Um, but having that kind of professional who's kind of watching your finances as well as looking at the rest can be really helpful. Oh, yes. My my sister has a fairly... Um, complex estate. Mm -hmm. And she works with a financial planner in addition to uh, an attorney and estate planning attorney. And it makes all the difference in the world. They know exactly when you should update and what you should update and what the most current forms are. One of the things that we had not considered for my mom when she did her documents way back when was, um, a diagnosis specific directive and she's beginning to have some cognitive decline. Yeah. For instance, and how much care do you want if you're totally cognitively cl- declined versus exactly. something where you have your mental capacities? Cause it can be very different. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's been yeah. in hospice, right? You and I know this whole idea of if people as part of their advanced directive say they don't want to be fed in advanced dementia, that's a big one, right? There's all sorts right. of those issues. Or um, don't treat infections. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, those are big points of contention for family members. And I can see where that would come in handy, but I also know that you can't predict every single scenario. Yep. There are millions it's too of hard. them. <laughs> it's too hard. Yeah. There's, it's just not possible. It's not yeah. realistic. And I don't know that that's always helpful. I think it's better to make decisions in the here and now with what you know it's better to have deep conversations with your decision maker who then will have to pivot and and have to answer some of those unanswered questions but at least they've spent a lot of time talking to you and hashing out what you like and don't like and what's important to you you know sometimes i think maybe it was better that betty wasn't able to make any decisions after she got so sick because she was a very fearful person yeah I, we found things inside her house. No, she had written to herself. We think she was very depressed. Yeah. Um, and if I had had to try to have those conversations with her, I don't think she would have been. Make the decisions. Yeah. I think that's why she handed the papers and was happy just to leave it with us. Yeah. Cause she, she knew that you us. would do a better job than she might've done for herself. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I remember being very angry with her and thinking, why could why is it okay to take advantage of someone like this? She knew we wouldn't abandon her. Yeah. And she was 30 years older than we were. So she, you know, the fact the the possibility that we would die before she did was very yeah. slim. Yeah. But yeah, I, not my best moments, I have to say. But I think we took good care of Betty. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. um, you know, you do the best you can. And we talk about this obviously in hospice all the time, but that the the epidemic of guilt people feel after their loved ones die. It's like, if we could just ease that, like you do the best you can (laughs) and nothing's perfect. And it's always traumatic because people are dying and you just, you do the best you can. And it's, it's so hard to tell people afterwards, okay, now it's time to let go of the guilt because your loved one wants you to move on. And, you know, 
you did right. the best you can and it was good enough and ha- things happened the way they were supposed to. And now it's time to let go of it. Yeah. yeah. Guilt is not required. I have always told families, you made the best decision at the yeah. time with the information that you had. Yeah. You know, and you can go back enough. and yeah, it has to be enough because for you to move forward with your grief, because it moves with you right yeah. after yeah. your, your loved one dies, you just have to be able to put your head on the pillow and close your eyes and feel like you did the best you could. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.